0: Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today, and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted, and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield.
1: Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Keep in mind, if you want to learn more about Euros Hartley's, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This episode, we have an absolutely stellar opportunity to chat with Mr. Bill Beeman, the Managing Director of ASX-listed base metal developer and specialist underground mining service provider DEVELOP, stock code DVP. Bill, who is well known to many, is the former Managing Director and Executive Chair of Northern Star, having been with the company for some 14 years, overseeing a massive expansion from junior to a global-scale Australian gold producer with world-class projects in highly prospective regions of Australia and America. This podcast has it all, the highs and the lows, over two full parts, A and B, from Bill's upbringing in Country WA, to his days on the tools, learning the art of underground mining, to joining Northern Star the phenomenal growth path, including the acquisitions, how the purchase of half of the Kalgoorlie super pit played out, the merger with Saracen Minerals, and what he is up to now, his views on develop and his pathway forward. This is a cracker, without a doubt. So in the interest of time, let's get started. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to the Euros Harley's Finding the Front podcast, Mr. Bill Beamer. Billy. Great to have you in the show. Such a privilege to have you and to be able to look back at your journey, which has been phenomenal, to say the least. I've done a bit of reading and I've read so many articles and it's amazing when you do a Google search on Bill Beeman, what comes up, it just goes forever. And to be able to have you in here and be able to sort of hear it firsthand is a real treat for not only us, but also all our listeners. And, and so thanks very much for your time.
2: Oh no, pleasure Ben, and hopefully the Google searches are all positive.
1: (laughs) Well, they were mate, they were. So let's just start, if we can, back in Esperance. And I know you grew up down there and it's a great way to start because it really is quite a strong part of your upbringing. Just give us a bit of an insight into growing up down in Esperance, which is literally a long way away from Perth.
2: Yeah, look, I sort of born and bred there and I was the only one out of my family. So my sisters were born in Barranald in New South Wales and that's where the the folks originated from and come over in the, in the 70s and uh, you know, picked up their car and a few possessions and headed west to, to make a living. and uh, we sort of lobbed in the, the, the community of Conning up. Um, so yeah, definitely from Esperance, but I I'd probably call Conning up home to be honest, but, uh, and uh, you know, was uh, born obviously born out there and, and resided out in the country. so we're, we're literally living on a farm about 30 Ks out of town. Uh, and dad had his, his, sort of was a mechanic uh, out, in the, uh, out in the bush, servicing tractors and headers. And, and um, yeah, so we were sort of living in the community. Dad was working in there um, at the beef machine. Right. Um, so I think my kids are sick of me driving out, out of the Duke, which you know, hopefully we touch on. But that's just out near Condie. It's a fantastic beach spot. But every time we drive past the, past the beef machine, I get a photo out the front or you know, I have a big <laughs> smile going past it. You know, fond memories of growing up in that community and, and still, you know, really close to that community. You know, we've got a huge memorial to my dad on Anzac Day coming up. Right. Out at uh, the Conning Up Football Oval. So, looking forward to that. But uh, yeah, so I spent the first 10 years out there as a kid and terrorizing the farm and, you know, throwing boomerangs, chasing cows, all they were chasing me, going to, going to the school bus. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fond memories growing out there. And, and dad kicked off his business called Conning Up Machinery Wreckers, which uh, he sort of he started when I was about five. So, Sort of got pretty good exposure to, I guess, a work ethic back then as, as well with seeing how my dad operated in long hours and, I guess, his skill set and what he did with that business.
1: So you grew up, was it on a property out in Up?
2: Oh, look, we were in between Up and Esperance and, right. and we were very fortunate. Like, you know, look, we had nothing and, you know, if it wasn't for your social security, I don't know how we would have got fed every day. Right. Um, so that were pretty tough times and, you know, I reflect on that a lot and probably- gives me a fair bit of grounding on how I am now as an individual, but uh, we're just very fortunate. We had a um, family called the Johnsons at a big farmer's halfway between and gave you know, peppercorn rent for us to live in, a, in an older asbestos house. It was two bedroom, one bathroom, and you know there was three of us kids and the folks, so we lived there for you know eight years. I can't remember the first two because I lived in the beef machine, but I can't remember those two, but I do remember changing and, and getting thrown into the cot in my parents' uh, <laughs> bedroom, but, but yeah, they were very kind to us for those eight years while we lived there. And, and uh, I'll never forget that generosity and, and yeah, because we couldn't afford to live anyway.
1: So we'll get to your dad in a moment, but just tell us a little bit about growing up in Conning Up, but also Esperance per se. You went to primary school there?
2: Yeah, I went to, um, I was sort of just in that junction point Probably another 10 Ks to the east and I would have gotten a conning up primary, but because I was in the catchment, we went to Castletown primary. So yeah, so I did all my schooling there, and um, which was great. Probably hurt the old boy because I ended up playing for Newtown Football Club, not conning up, but I did <laughs> right. I did, did play two divisions until they worked it out and said, you can't play two divisions. <laughs> but yeah, so look, grew up and went to Castown primary for my whole schooling and that was you know, good school. And I think the principal there has only just retired. Is that right? Uh, Mrs. Gruer, she's like, I think she was 83 or 84 when she retired a year or so ago, but she was the principal when I was there. And she's, wow. been there for, she's the longest serving principal in primary school history of WA. Yeah, looking, growing up and conning up because dad was working out there and had the business out there from the time I can remember. I spent the vast, you know, outside of school, really out in the bush, out in that community, weekends out, you know, with the old man and, Going around farms, and we did a lot of pop ins. I'm, yep. I'm a pop in type person. My, my partner doesn't, not, not, not quite the same, but you know, when you're country, you pop in. And, uh, you know, and when you've when you got your old man, the pop in means a six pack of beer and, yeah. and uh, catch up with mates. But, you know, all those guys that were the old man's best mates and farmers out there, all their sons were the same age as me. So it was like a, you know, it was a great time. I have really fondly loved those years of, of out in that community and knocking around with all those guys and girls. and. Yeah. You know, just being a kid out in the bushes, you know, it's, it's a fantastic environment to learn from and grow up in and be around.
1: Oh, absolutely. So your dad was a mechanic, you mentioned that, and he went on to start his own business. And I sort of gather that he really was a big influence on you to start with in terms of delivering a work ethic, but also showing the power of hard work. Could you just give us a bit of an insight
2: into that business? It was basically a wrecking yard, so oh, he'd right. buy you know second hand tractors and harvesters and, and pull them to bits and, and you know clean up the parts and sell them to farmers all over Australia and, and a little bit offshore in the end as well. So very well known business, very successful business. Yeah, look, Dad left school when he was twelve. He could barely read or write and just went out and you know, didn't have the luxury of going to school like it was. You know they were on a farm out east of Arnold and that was the thing you did back in that generation. You know he had two other brothers and that just worked and. Then eventually, you know, did a mechanic apprenticeship and worked in a you know, dealership over there and then servicing, you know, in a service station as a mechanic and come across and, yeah, just like had a passion for farm machinery. That's fair to say. I, I think there's an element, I think Dad would have loved to have been a farmer, but we just didn't have the money to buy the farms. Yep. And, uh, you know, like that's the thing definitely when I went back east and saw the farming community back in Ranald and Swan Hill and that area and, you know, like it's intergenerational wealth and intergenerational farming, we didn't have that. Yes, so um, that was unfortunate. I think my dad would have made an unbelievable farmer. And, and if you follow what's happening in the state of Western Australia, the richest and biggest farmers are actually out at Conningup. You know, it's an amazing business area from the farming community and they never have a bad harvest. They're always smiling when I see them, so <laughs> that's, unu- that's unusual for farmers. <laughs> I think they, they just had a record season just gone by, so there's a lot of new Toyotas. Actually, no, you can't even get a Toyota at the moment. There's a lot of happy farmers uh, running it was around the community. One hell of a year last year, wasn't it? Oh, amazing, yeah. amazing prices and yields. Yeah. So look, Dad created that business um, out there, and you know, built the shed. He hand built his own shed workshop, which is you know, I was only four or five, so you know, I threw a few. I can claim I threw a few spanners, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, maybe I, I was just running around kicking a football. But but yeah, that was you know, it's exciting time and a, and a great community, and and they backed my dad as well. The community. That's the other thing is. You know, I think when we moved into the business, in the into, into up, there was only three houses in the town. There's a number of houses now. I think there's probably 150 or 200 houses there now, but yeah, there was only three when we moved in there and, and it's one of the best pubs in the wa too. It's my favourite pub, the Condy Tav. Right. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Forrest was just there the other day, trying to sell his uh, FFI stuff, but uh, yeah, fantastic pub and well patronised.
1: So we growing up in that community, sport clearly played a pretty big role. You enjoyed your footy, cricket growing up or was it just football?
2: Oh, um, definitely footy. It's uh, Well, back in Esperance, I, I got right into tennis and it was, that, was, okay, one, that tennis. was my main sport, yep. but tennis was on the same time as cricket, so you couldn't do both. Hence why I played a lot of indoor cricket and only gave it up a couple of years ago. But nah, footy was huge and you know, being in a small community, Connie Up had its own team back then and, and my dad was a huge advocate of that. He was a major sponsor for a long time and you know, built stuff there and, you know, was was a real stalwart of the club financially and, and patronized wise and I think he might have called the siren once or twice as well. <laughs> Maybe a little bit earlier for right. a point in front, but, but that wouldn't be like the old boy. <laughs> but um but no, it was footage hu- was huge there and, and still is and uh and it was something that brought the whole community together and you know, everyone's you know, their sons played it all and you know, everyone was playing a you know, league that probably should have been in because Resi resis because we didn't have the numbers. Yep. yep. Um yeah, like I say, I, I played the under twelves there when I was playing uh sort of twelve reserves for Newtown. So <laughs> um just to make up the numbers and I'll well, sort of hopefully I didn't make up the numbers but uh you know what I mean. Yeah, so sure. Yeah. It was one of those one we had some old man Feigart, he was still playing Resis at the age of fifty something so you know it was that type of comp from conning up so we didn't we didn't really win many games but we um definitely were the probably the most vibrant club out of out of the lot
1: (laughs) sounds like a great time
2: yeah it was it's it was good terrorizing the the community around there and uh there's a lot of fun nights there i I saw my dad and his friends and all, all myself and all all our young kids and and as you grow up as well you still go back there and looking forward to going back on anzac day for the anzac day clash
1: and tell me a little bit about your mum. What was she up to?
2: Yeah, look, my mum was, you know, she'd come from a very good family back at home, like yes. a very wealthy farming family. But, you know, look, back in those generations, you know, the daughters got nothing, if you know what I mean. So I think mum was one of five daughters and there was two brothers and the brothers got the farm and right. all on that beautiful river country. So, you know, the girls marry and that's that was the way of the generations back there. So my mum gave up a lot to come over to the west and, and no family network or support over here. and. uh you know, she did have a sister in Albany, but that was it. So pretty lonesome journey. And, yes. um. But look, mum support, did a fantastic job supporting dad and, uh, and bringing up the kids and uh, living out in the bush. And like I say, you know, we, we had nothing for a long period of time there and, and she made that work and uh, that was super important. So yeah, look, mum passed away a few years ago, but no, she was brilliant. And I've got a lot of traits from my mum, so, and a few looks and something as well. So but a uh, very kind and caring person that did an amazing job with, with us kids. And, uh, you yeah, we didn't go without, if you know what I mean, even yeah. though we had nothing. So.
1: Yeah. Oh, look, thanks for sharing that, Bill. Yeah, I mean, it's quite fascinating when you look at the upbringing you've had. Clearly you had a beautiful family surrounding you and the community was pretty important and had a big role to play. I noticed that you took your schooling through Esperance and then you went away to boarding school.
2: Yeah, look, I went to Masnod College. It was sort of like when Dad took the business from Conning Up, when I was about 10 years old, he moved the business from Conning Up into Esperance. Right. Just out of town, uh, opposite the Esperance Golf Course that I I stole many a golf ball from. So (laughs) anyone listening that that missed a golf ball that went into the lakes, that was me hiding in the the lakes, stealing all those balls and then reselling them. But but no, when he took the business in, it really did flourish. But because I was the youngest out of my siblings, there was a three or four year gap between my sisters. They never got the opportunity what I did from a schooling basis. I got the opportunity to go to boarding school. I did my first two years of high school at Esperance High. Yes. And, you know, fast forward, you know, there's still, you know, great mates of mine. I grew up with them, but I think it was only four people out of 130, or 150 that actually went to university that graduated in year 12 in Esperance High in my year group. So wow. it was a sacrifice. My mum and my dad thought hard about that because dad didn't appreciate education. And I was reasonably smart, not, not super smart. Don't get me wrong. I didn't get the hugest TE score, but I was very good at maths and science and, you know, they probably a couple of key disciplines that I, that I love and still rate, and you know, we need to do more in that in the schools, but that was always going to take me through an education path into a, a university-type degree, and yeah, I was, just, I was just very fortunate that my mum beat my dad in that argument, and um, he spat the chips, but he, he did ask me to his credit, he goes like, you know, it's up to you, and, and I said, no, I really want to go, and, and uh, yeah, went to Masanog College for three years, and yeah, you know, it's not the... The most academic school, very, very sporty school, but a really good balance of everything, community, you know, educational and sport. I think you know, it gave me a really good bound. I didn't really enjoy the boarding school yeah, environment. Yeah. I enjoyed having a football team around me every night. That was great. Or a cricket team or a basketball team. Yes. And I've still got great mates from boarding school, like, you know, a couple in particular ones, my best mate still. And uh, we went to uni together as well in School of Mines. But yeah, so that gave me a good grounding, mate, to be independent as well. Boarding yes. school is pretty tough. Yep. and yeah, you know, like we did some shit that I still regret these days to certain certain pupils, and that was the era of bullying and, and all that sort of shit, you know, which you don't see anymore, thank yep. God. But yep. you know, you get involved in some of that as peer group pressure, and but um, and I copped it as well as, but geez, it made us independent and uh, stand on my own two feet and sure, and look, I you know, like I say, it was a really good balance for me, you know. But I look, I haven't even been back to the school since I left, which is I don't know, I'm still still trying to work that one out in my head why. Yep. It wasn't the hugest experience, but I did like the people I was with, and I did get a good education that then led on to, I guess, where I went to next in university.
1: There's a couple of things that comes out of that, Bill, is that, first of all, working with your dad, you really got a, a handle on machinery, big machines, you yeah, know, absolutely. What, what constituted a big machine and what it took to drive one, what it took to be a part of one. Firstly, the second thing is, you got yourself to a point where you had options through school. Yeah. And you could go to a university. Yep. The big question most kids have at that age is, well, how did you know what you wanted to do and where did you want to go? Because it's such a big, I mean, we've all got kids that are going through that right now. What am I going to do? How did you know?
2: Yeah, the old man was just had a work ethic that I've never seen before. And look, I've got, you know, I'm a workaholic. That's who I am. And I was working until 2.30 this morning on, on my own business. So. But yeah, dad instilled that, but I saw it, I was immersed in it, but he was one of those people that, you know, I, I had no option but to help him or assist him or be, you know, work, work around. So from pretty much, you know, early age, even probably eight, nine, I was out of Conalp, I was driving bloody gear around and, and I enjoyed that, you know, as a young kid, you yep. jump on a tractor or a harvester or whatever, and, or a crane. But, you know, when the business moved in town and expanded really, really quickly, I was not a full-time employee, but not, not too far off you know, working with dad and on weekends and and he'd give me the cashies. So that was great. Um, (laughs) And uh, so that was, that was awesome. But then I traveled a lot with dad and, you know, we had to go to a lot of auctions all around the clearance, farm clearance sales, as you know, and that's where dad, you know, got his business because he had to buy all that gear all around the state and, so I travelled a vast array of uh, WA countryside and hopefully no police uh, listening, but I, I drove his ute all around the countryside <laughs> from, and I was sitting on a pillow because I was actually quite short until about year 12, first year in when I actually had my growth spurt, but I used to have to sit on a pillow as a 10, 12-year-old you know, and I was driving his little HQ Kingswood ute all around the countryside while he was asleep there. Yeah, so look, it's, I you know, had that exposure on, uh, around the yard. I used to shock a lot of people coming in. Trucks would come in with gear and tractors and stuff dropping off and or, you know, tires or whatever. And there I'd be in the crane and sitting on a pillow. Uh, <laughs> I drove that crane all the time. I literally was the full-time crane driver for Conning Out Wreckers and uh, people used to spin out when I'd get out and I'd be four foot high and 12 years old. <laughs> Just looking, some, over the <laughs> looking over
1: the steering wheel. Looking over the steering wheel. I'd say
2: the pillow come in, in handy, but never smashed anything or broke anything. But yeah, so I, you know, I was around machinery a lot. And that was one of my appeals for mining was I just, I love big kit and big machinery. So, and that mechanical aptitude has done me really well in my career, like especially early on working underground is, you know, I spent a long time, we'll probably come to it later on, but I spent a long time underground before I went into the office and that mechanical aptitude of driving cranes and trucks and bloody loaders and, you know, harvesters and tractors held me in massive stead for my next part of my you know, yes. journey and work career. And, and still to this day, I like, do pride myself. I can, can reverse trailers and trucks and all that. So <laughs> you, know, you don't get to do it much, but I am threatening the boys when we start our new underground mines. I'm taking the first cut and I'm bogging it out and I'm trucking it as well. So uh,
1: so that was a really integral part of getting you to the School of Mines. I mean, your next step out of Masnod was to go to the School of Mines. And what made you was that the driver? Yes, and you wanted to get into mining, but you didn't know which element of mining you wanted to get into? or?
2: Oh, look, I, I did from an early age. Like I'd been around dad, I, you know, and I was, I literally was a full-time crane driver. I pretty much knew early on, not many people, I asked my kids these, these days, you know, what do you want to be? And they're like, dad, we're not like you. And we'll work it out another two or three years. And I'm like, oh, shit, you're going to be 22 by then, or 20 or whatever. But um, early on, I just liked business. That was one thing I, I saw dad, he was entrepreneurial. Couldn't read or write, but he was entrepreneurial and had that work ethic, and I just saw the fruits of that labour as 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 he developed that business in town. And and like the time I was sort of fourteen, fifteen, he was he was getting really successful, and you're at that age where you understand it. So I wanted to be in business, but I didn't want to be in his business. It wasn't appealing for me, and I was the only son, so you know that was pretty disappointing for him, and took him probably a while to get over that. But like I had aspirations to use my maths and science and go into something, so. I originally wanted to get into oil and gas. Right. Yeah, like when I was a 12, 13, 14-year-old, I thought, yeah, that's great, I want to be in oil and gas. And thank God I didn't get down that path now because it's sort of a bit of a dirty word. But then, you know, through that, I, I went to a careers expo when I was, I reckon, 13, and I wanted to be a crane driver. That's what I want to be. I want to be a crane driver. And you had to be 16 to get your tickets and all that and get your certification, your riggers and all that. And so I was over at the crane driver stand first careers expo they did in the basketball stadium at home and i was talking to the the riggers and the crane drivers and how to go about it and i got hit in the bloody eye by one of those laser theodolite machines survey instrument machines and i went what the hell's that but i'll go and have a look at that and went over and it was the school of mines careers expo stand fantastic yeah so like i just started talking and they were explaining and you know stuff mining and surveying and all that and i was like this is really cool and it's all maths and science so, yeah, from that point at 13, I wanted to be a mine server, which, you know, looking back, sorry to any surveyors out there, glad I didn't go to that. Well, if I actually end up changing in the end, in year 12, I changed my um, preference from mine surveying to mine engineering. Right. You know, the rest is history from that. Predominantly mining engineers, you know, manage mining companies or managing operations. Yes. And they're uh, sort of top dogs and I'm glad I went down that path. But, yeah, definitely the School of Mines was an amazing sort of event, you know, just sliding door moment. Wow. Sliding door moment.
1: And, and so let's go on to the School of Mines. It's a, a celebrated institution. Your alumni, when you talk about mining, is quite prestigious when you look in the lights of the guys that you hear have been through the School of Mines. Raleigh Finlayson, Ken Brinston, David Flanagan, Shane McClay, just to name a few. Tell me a little bit about what you saw within the School of Mines. What sets it apart? And talk about your journey through there.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, REL is a mining surveyor. (laughs) So uh, he did all right, actually. So I shouldn't bag surveys, but um, yeah, he did fantastic. And, you know, so we all know what REL's achieving and going on to achieve. But look, I I think, like any great institution, there comes a a history and a culture that's been, you know, evolved and lived and breathed and nurtured and, and cared for over a number of journeys. And I think when I got to the School of Mines it was probably 90 years old or whatever it was, and so that tradition and that culture was well ingrained and, and it brought through a lot of people in, in industry that, that you knew of or you're working for or whatever and you know there's a lot of industry legends and they retire and then there's new industry legends and it's got a fantastic culture and, and also because it's based in Kalgoorlie, you had the element where you just knew everyone and you're in the community, you're immersed in it you literally Eating, sleeping, shitting and partying with everyone in that university, to be quite frank. And you form lifelong relationships there and you can't escape. It's not like Perth where you go to Curtin Uni and you caught a bus or an Uber or whatever to get there or parked. I mean, you come from all different suburbs, you know, like basically Kalgoorlie's one suburb. Yes. So you're playing sport with everyone. You go to the pub, same pub, same nightclub, same cafe. And obviously at uni you're all together. So just that interaction is just an amazing ecosystem that just... It was just fantastic to be involved in. And like I say, I've got lifelong friends that are still my lifelong friends from there. And there's a lot of unwritten rules about the institution. You know, I'll take a call from any wasn't graduate anywhere around the world, don't even know who who they are. It's just a code of ethics we operate in. But it was just a great tradition. And, you know, I wasn't the smartest person coming through, but, you know, the lecturers were also in that fold as well. Like, you know, I I broke my um, ankle and had bloody 13 screws, four plates, and three operations dodging pre season football on my motorbike. And, uh, you know, I spent six months off, but, you know, the lecturers knew that I probably had a little bit of sparkle and and a bit of go about me and, you know, I literally got passed on a few subjects I probably shouldn't have, but they knew it as well. They just knew who to look after and and what to do and how to nurture people through. So it was just an an amazing organisation, which obviously I'm extremely passionate about. Yes. It's the fabric of the mining industry when you really look at it. Yes. Um, I think we've got 40% of industry's graduates nationwide on engineering and, and metallurgy and geology and surveying. So it's a powerhouse.
1: It sure is. Absolutely. And when you came out of there, Bill, you came out of there with a, an honours in engineering and mining. Yeah, I don't know how. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's pretty outstanding.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, don't quote the, the class of the honours, but uh, I think I did shock. I literally did on the graduation, I, I shocked everyone that. I had the, because uh, you, you can't miss it. You've got the robe and you've got the different stripe. Yeah. And look, I took five years to do a four-year degree, by the way. Yeah, and look, there's reasons why. I, I didn't have the mass to get in and I failed English in year 12. So I might have to do bridging courses in my first year uni and that push you back and you can't do certain subjects. So that's my side of the story. But, um, <laughs> but my last year, someone had to run the pub. Right, okay. And that's, I can't remember that year, but... Uh, it's, um, and I can't remember locking the joint up every now and again, but, uh, and with another colleague, Simon Jessup, who's uh, another industry legend, uh, who's the COO of Northern Star at the moment and was one of REL's key lieutenants. So Simon and I ran that pub for a year and uh, I don't think he can remember locking up sometimes either, just <laughs> by the way. Good times. Yeah, look, it was, but it was, you know, I was working four 12-hour shifts a week that last year at Canauna which is quite funny because I ended up going on and buying that mine. But uh, yeah, so it's... Uh, and had to run the pub, play, I was playing rugby then. Yeah, it was a, it was a good last year, but when I rocked up to graduation with, with the, you know, because I was five years, it was a year below, and um, that was one of the biggest years that graduated in mining engineering. I think they were literally shocked that I got <laughs> honours. <honest. laughs> Which, you know, like it's, it's like the universities, I think we use 5% of that degree, but there's the unwritten stuff you can't put in a degree. It's like working with people you know, cheating on exams, <laughs> all that sort of stuff, how to get away with it, how to store stuff in your calculator. But, um, no, nah, seriously, like, you know, working with people and those team environments, we're always doing mentoring, sorry, tutoring groups together. You know, we're doing assignments together and, you know, we all had our little groups. did Yeah, like I lived with the same four guys. I lived with Simon Jessup, Chris Bray, Shane McClay and myself, you know. Oh, sorry, not Shane. Shane, we did one year, but another guy, Scott Boyle. So we lived together four or five years and, and Shane for a couple as well. So, I and, mean, you, know, you just form those relationships and each house had the same sort of setup, and then we'd all go to that house and study and play around and have a bit of fun. But, uh,
1: but as you say, it's produced a phenomenal network.
2: It's an amazing alumni that's come out of that. And, you know, this is from, you know, the Barry Pattersons, the Peter Bartlett's of the world and, you know, all these people that have come through the system and, you know, the who's who of the mining industry that really built all, you know, all that infrastructure, all those companies, Western Mining was stacked full of it. There was a breeding ground. And all the mining services companies, a lot of them come out of the, the stable of the School of Mines and alumni. So it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing sort of um, story of maybe one day they'll write a bit of a book about who's, who's come out and then what they've done. But uh, yeah, it's extraordinary. And, yeah. and it's just an unbelievable network. And, and it just sort of, it gave you the building blocks to then go into the field. And, uh, and uh, that's something that uh, we've just got to keep nurturing that. You know, Curtin are doing a fantastic job as custodians of that, that institution and it's got the recognition need, cause it needs because we did have a few bites there 10, 10 or 15 years ago right. to try and keep it in Kalgoorlie so you know, that's long past and it's a great relationship there now so again we just got to get more kids to get in to study those disciplines because you know mining now is coming sexy with these you know, future facing metals and uh, so we're going to need the youngest and brightest of, of the communities to come in and mine and help the world transition. Bill, from there
1: I think It's a really good point to make that when you embarked on your career, and this is where we get into the guts of it now in terms of you've come out of the school of minds, and it seemed to be to me a deliberate pathway that you had in mind as to how you wanted to go about your career. And I'd be really interested to hear how this unfolds, but you came out and it seemed like you mapped it out. You had an understanding, You, you mentioned or alluded to earlier, you wanted to get on the tools earlier, rather than go into a management or an office style environment, you started out on the tools. And so was that part of just a whole raft of decisions you thought you would have had to make to get to where you wanted to go?
2: Yeah, look, absolutely. I've always had a career pathway in mind. And I definitely get to forks in the road where you've got to make a decision to go one way or the other. And I always take counsel when I get into those situations. But it's fair to say I've mapped out. My career along the way, there's there's always optimizations and stuff like that or opportunities, but I don't do anything erratic. I I stick to the game plan. And and so I've always had a view of where I want to ultimately be. And I'm really only stepping into that role now, to be honest, as stupid as it sounds. I'm now doing what I've always wanted to do. And we'll come to that a bit later. But going back, I looked at, you know, I'm a practical person. I'm not handy with my hands. I'm not going, I can't go and do a lathe and make a chair or something like that. But I can fix shit on a car and stuff like that. I know how to service it and change, you know, change XYZ. That's, you know, brought up with that, obviously, from Dad's background. But I just looked at mining and thought, well, I'm a mining engineer. I'm ultimately going to end up being the general manager of a mine site. That was the goal, underground yes. manager and then general manager. That's your dream as a mining engineer going through. And then I look, well, what do I need to get into that position? I always look at that sort of stuff. What do I need to, to get to that end goal? What do I need to achieve all the experience I need? And then how am I going to be perceived in that role? And I worked out pretty quickly, I needed to know the operational side, you know, so that I could, then when I got into management or, or get onto the technical side, I, I knew the practical side to be able to apply that technical aspects too, because mining is, it's operational and operational people make or break you. And I don't think people realise this, but you know, my old shop, you know, we, I think we ended up with five and a half, six thousand 6,000 people when I left mid last year, only 10% of that workforce was people from a technical discipline like an engineer, mining engineer, a metallurgist, a surveyor, or geologist. The other 90% are mechanics, fitters, you know, auto sparkies, electricians, operators, or blue-collar workers, or process you know, operators. That's 90%. That's, your, that's yes. your heart and soul of your business is, yes. your, is your, you know, what I call your blue-collar workforce, but they make or break you. And, and so I thought, well, if I'm going to be a manager, that's the workforce I'm going to need to manage. And they need to respect you. And how do they respect you? Well, you've got to go there and do their job, be there, done it before, experience it, understood it, work side by side. Yes. Because i I've always one of these people that I'm in this for the long game and, you know, I'd probably never retire, but like I'm still in this for another 30, 40 years in what I'm doing. And I just thought, well, I need to be at that shop floor. I need to be working with these people because I want them all through my career as well. And so when I get into management, I want them to keep working for me, respect me and all that sort of stuff. So hence, I... I wanted to get the right experience. And look, back when I was you know, doing uni time, you worked every holidays. That's how you put yourself through uni. Yes. You know, two, three months, you blow the first week of, uh, of uni and stay at the ABH, which we all did. And, and we'd, you know, Sunday session, run amok for a week at the yeah, old Quinn Livens pub. And uh, like the rest of the country do. Yeah, we was just skipped that first year. The lecturers got over it after the first year. They, they didn't give a shit. <laughs> In fact, they, they end up taking the first week off uni because they thought, these boys aren't coming back. But, you know, those uni holidays, what, what I worked out is, and you know, I went and worked for predominantly in the end the mining contractors because back then Western Mining was really changing. It was a, it was a changing of the guard. Western Mining was the organisation which was the pinnacle. You wanted to go and work for them. You know, they had that many operations, Campbell, Olympic Dam, everywhere they were, you know, they were massive and they would train well and they created a lot of entrepreneurial spirit out there. But all those people then went out and created the burn cuts, the bum incos. JR engineering and, and all those organizations. It was a massive exodus of high performing talent out of that business. Right. Massive. A few management changes at the top didn't help that. I won't go there. You know, they lost that spirit and they, the organization really started to deteriorate early on. So us as mining engineers or geo, none of us wanted to work for Western mining. As sad as it is. But you know, all the great geos were all going out and doing other stuff as well. And they lost that high performing talent. So so we and all these people went into the mining contractors or services industry. So we followed them and we wanted to work in those organisations because they're entrepreneurial, they're energetic and, and they trained you the right way. So yeah, I went and worked for Elton's, which was you know, owned by Patterson and Bodica, Smithy and Harkes. Then I ended up working for Barminco later on. But yeah, those organisations were, were amazing to, to get that DNA and it was working with you know, at the coal coalface. So I spent four years underground as a labourer. Right. And, you know, to get your tickets, like your shift boss's ticket and the underground manager's ticket, which is what you want. You want your first class ticket, sorry, to run a mine. You need that. That's a statutory position. You have to have basically a year's experience underground. As a labourer and a year's experience associated with underground in you know, technical planning and all sorts of stuff, then there's another five years experience in mining and yada yada. But there's a really described discipline of what you need to do underground. But like I did four years and I deliberately did that. No one knew I was a mining engineer. That was one thing. I had that pack with Paddy Ryan was the ops manager with Elton's, and you know, they had a wicked graduate program, which I've cut and paste, Farm Northern Star, and I'll do it again in my new vehicle. It was a wicked um, graduation package, graduation experience, but uh, Paddy ran that, ran the engineers, but um, no one knew I was a mining engineer. I did that deliberately. I didn't want any favours. I didn't want anyone looking at me, you know, thinking, oh, one day you're going to be my boss or whatever, and I wanted to earn my stripes. I didn't want to go from you know, nippering to a truck or to charge up or to a bogger or to a jumbo. I wanted to earn it yep and i did for four years like no one knew i was a mining engineer it was only the sort of day i left when everyone's like you're on the jumbo earning a thousand bucks a shift back then and this is 90 97 and a thousand bucks a shift as a as a graduate it's not too bad phenomenal and people turn around going well what are you leaving the jumbo for you you've been on for six months i said mate i didn't go to uni to, to sit on jumbo i've got aspirations to go xyz and they're like what you're a mining engineer i was <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah Go, geez you gee, hit that well it's one of those things where that grounding of that blue collar, they're all people still working for me now or, or I've worked with in the past or coming to join me. This, this is, these are the underground operators still out in the field that, you know, they're, they're the blood, sweat and tears type people that, you know, will walk over hot coals for you because you did the same for them back at the coal face. And then when you got into, into the management roles, you, you nurtured them. Such established relationships. Yeah, it's, mining is all about relationships.
1: Yep, yep. And so, I mean, you mentioned you went to Barminko, You were there for around eight years. You ended up at about 24, you were overseeing 150 miners. So you clearly graduated through the ranks quite quickly.
2: Yeah, look, absolutely. I was with Elton's, you've got to be 23, I think it's 23 to do shift bossing because underground shift bossing is the pinnacle of that blue collar worker type stuff. And I did end up doing a year of underground shift bossing out of those four years. But I had to go to Northern Territory because I was 22. I couldn't do shift bossing in W, even though I passed the exam, I had to wait physically to turn 23. So I went to the Northern Territory, which is a new mine operation now, the Granites, and and I did shift bossing there for six months. Then when I come back, I was 23 and and I could shift boss back in there and and Elton's, we got kicked out of Campbellder and I switched over to GBF and worked for them for a year and did a bit of shift bossing and site engineering. Then got picked up into into Barminco and I was just very fortunate because when I was with GBF, which is a great year. I met a, a mentor, still still a me now, but an industry legend miner called Ken Miller, Mungrel right. Miller. And uh, he's 77 now. I just talked to him the other day. I'm going to go see him in a couple of months in Queensland. Yeah, Ken was a, a legend back in Cambelda and had his own contracting business, small scale, and then eventually got out of that, sold out of that, and worked for Roscoe with GBF down there. And uh, he was my boss there for six months and saw a bit of talent in me and just said, went, got poached into Barminko by Peter Bartland uh, at Waluna and rang me up like within two or three weeks and said, Bill, you know, you've got to come up here as, as my relief manager. And I was, you know, 24 years of age and, yeah, 150 miners up there in uh, Willuna. And, and that was a baptism of fire, to be honest. It was like, I would have thought so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No one's born with management or leadership skills. No, <laughs> so, and
1: I would have thought most of the miners you were managing were older than you.
2: Every one of them. Right. Yeah. Well, that answers so, that. Maybe, yep. maybe two truck drivers are a bit younger. And I've had to deal with that all through my career, to be honest. Yeah, it's changed now because I'm 47, but it was only a couple of years ago, I still had to deal with that. So, but I've had that, you know, that all the way through, but uh, yeah, Ken was brilliant for me in, um, in Barminco, really gave me that start and, and gave the credibility, like bringing in a young mining engineer that no one's heard of and, and running, you know, that was a big operation, like say 150 people. Yeah, as relief manager, so we're on a sort of nine and five roster and so five days I'm left by myself and, and yeah, you, you learn how to, you know, there's a lot of things I, I literally stuffed up on and, and that sort of stuff, but you learn from that. And that was a real learning curve of how to talk to large-scale workforces, and in particular blue-collar workers, how to make them respond and, uh, and work for you. And, and it didn't take long, actually. And again, you know, I'll, there was people in, in there that I'd worked with before, which at the coalface, lucky I did those four years because there was operators at Willona, like, oh, how you going, Bill? And yeah. You know, and they could vouch for you. So, you know, you get on yeah. them, you know, because, you know, as soon as they, they leave the muster room and go underground, they're like, who's that young pup? You know, blah, 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 But to my defense, these guys come in pretty quickly, said, no, no, I've worked with Bill for, for a long time, you know, for years. And he, he's got a bit of talent. He'll be right. Give him a break. Let him have a crack at this.
1: So, Bill, once you've been past this, you almost say, whilst it's not an apprenticeship, it really is an apprenticeship to start and get you into where you ended up. At this stage, you could fairly well accurately call yourself an underground specialist at that point. And you decided, well, it's time to make the move and enter Northern Star.
2: Yeah, well, look, I spent eight and a half years with Barminco. And, and, and by the end of that, you know, I was running all their West Australian operations and had 1, 1,200 people under me in 12 mine sites. And a lot of those mines are still going today. So, yeah, like in the end, you know, running those large scale teams and equipment and contracts and clients. It's fair to say we saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and Barminco was a fantastic company to work for. You know, Peter owned it, very entrepreneurial and cutting edge. In you know, like us and and Burncup were the two best underground mining contractors. So yeah, look, that gave me a, an unbelievable grounding. But again, I had the same the same sort of thing as. as and there was a, there was a step in between Northern Star. I did leave Barminco and go and set up my own contracting business. Right. So I, I did that with a couple of colleagues. We went up in Northern Territory. So. And again, it was one of those ones, I was sort of, the entrepreneurial come out of me because my dad said to me as a kid, he said, look, it took him a long time to, to start his business. Don't get me wrong, he was like 40 or something when he started it. But he said, you know, if you can never work for someone like, you know, don't be a PAYG employee, Bill. He's like, I, you know, spent half his life doing that. And he goes, you've got to ultimately do that and work for yourself. That's where you should be. And literally, I'm, even though I'm a publicity company now, I'm, yeah, I'm a massive shareholder in it, much, much, much bigger than Norton Star. And so I do feel like I'm, I'm working for myself again, which is super important. Otherwise, I wouldn't be there. Yes. But so look, you know, I went and set up my own underground contracting business. It was, that was a really good learning curve. It was massive. Like we started off from scratch. We had nothing, no systems. You know, we had no money. I sold a house to fund it. We managed to scrounge, you know, Westpac Bank. I don't know how they did it. Gave us a line of credit and, uh, <laughs> and you know, we had a client that wanted us, you know, really pulled us out of the old, old organisation of Barmico to set us up and gave us a kickstart. You know, everyone needs a kickstart in life. Yes. And they definitely gave us a kickstart. Um, look, it was one of those ones, made the first mill at 33 and lost it at 34. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, and that was an amazing journey. Like, a, you know, like they had open pit and underground operations and look, the open pit operations pretty much sent them broken, a couple of bad management decisions on their behalf. But look, you know, they owed us a lot of money, but you know, that was, you know, to our credit, we paid everyone back, all employees entitlements, every supplier, you know, we paid back, Any, anyone associated with that business, we paid back, even the people that supplied us some equipment that we had to, you know, refurb and yep. get it back to condition. It took me about 18 months, two years to pay that final payment back. Because we owed the ATO money, everything, you know, like we walked away with our shirts on our back, but most importantly is we paid everyone out. And, and that person I took two years to pay out, he's my, my partner's uncle. So oh. thank God I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I was, family barbecues would be a bit awkward, but a um, small world type shit. But, um, but yeah, look, that was just, you know, and you fast forward from that example and, you know, you get a lot smarter and wiser in business yes. by, you know, losing everything basically and having to start from scratch. And that was a, a great example. So we did that for about 18 months, two years. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was a fantastic business, but when you don't get paid at the end of the day, it's not. No, no. Um, so it gave us a really good, gave me a really good grounding on, on business, what to do and what not to do. And, and I'm, you know, I'm proud of what we did with all those people and paying everyone out, because not many people do that. We could have taken an easy option, to be honest. Yep. And we probably would have walked away with a couple of million bucks each, but we didn't do that. You know, and it's not, thank God, but it's, that's just our, it's our DNA is, you know, it hurt, but- you know, fast forward years later, people go, yeah, well, I'm going to come work for you, Bill, because you, you did, did the right thing. thing. Yep. And um, yeah, so look, I, even stepping out of Barminko, people were like, you know, why are you doing that? You know, you're on you know, your 3IC, they want you to, you know, like the succession plan ultimately was, you know, me to be MD of that business in due course. And I just said to people, I, I want to do stuff myself. But I, again, I came back to, I, I didn't do mining engineering to be a mining contractor. That was not the goal. Ultimately, mining engineers are end up in the mine ownership side of things. And and I said, I've done it this journey because again, I wanted all that skill set But when I did get into mine ownership, because you quite often see mine owners that literally stuff up their operations because they don't know how to mine. Yes. And uh, I just never wanted to be one of those mine owners eventually that didn't have that DNA. So yeah, that was a critical, that was half my career was mining contracting and talk about it later, but I'm getting back into it. It's part of my business model and I love it and I'm super passionate about it. But you look at mining engineers that go through that mining contracting system and then go into, into operational lines of management, they are very successful. And, and you know like Stu Tonkin's one of those guys. Luke Cray is the CO, ex-COO of Northern Star, the current COO of Northern Star. Simon Jessup had a big grounding in, in burn cut. You can go across the industry and guys like Shane McClay has got a consultant business now but had a good grounding in contracting. So those people that have come through those disciplines, they, you know, they really do go on and be very, very solid mine, mine owners. And I wanted to be one of those people.
1: Once that mining services business had been wound up and, and sorted, that was when Northern Star came online.
2: Yes, yeah. And that the was the difficult times.
1: The opportunity came up. How did you find the company?
2: It found me. Basically, when our client was going broke, we weren't getting paid. Obviously, we owed a lot of money and you know, I had three, two kids, one coming out. So, yeah, you know, it was difficult times, really, really difficult times yes. and quite challenging. I don't like talking about it too much, no. but um, yeah, look, they were, um, you know, you didn't know where the next meal was going to come from and, you know, not being drastic about it, but no. it, was, it was pretty difficult. It like was you, reality. Yeah, it was reality. Yeah. So, you know, I had to, you know, do consultancy work and, you know, look, when you come out of, you know, three IC of a large organisation running a heap of people and getting paid a fortune, you know, to, to drop back, you know, 10 levels in your career type thing. Not saying about that consultants, but like it was, yeah, that was hard. And, and there was some people that gave me work that um, yeah, I'll never forget.
1: Yeah, yeah. Some, real, some people really stood in your corner. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: And they didn't have to. So, you know, it's just, you look back and you go, shit. And, uh, you yeah, know, I've replicated that favour favor a number of times with different people in industry that have had those tough journeys. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so.
1: Oh, good on you, Bill. Thanks for sharing it. I mean, they, these sorts of things—they don't—they don't break you. They make you stronger, clearly. Yeah. And and in this case, Northern Star found you in that respect.
2: Yeah, look, absolutely. And um, you know, I just—I had a headhunter that uh, guy Rolly Pannock, who's sort of still around, probably a little bit semi-retired now, but I bump into him every now and again down the Cot. Yeah, he was sort of one-man band, and he, he kept close to industry and then could spot talent, which is one of the main things from a good recruiter. And he headhunted me earlier on actually for a job in Western areas, which is a job that Dan Locker ended up getting and, right. and then going on to be CEO and MD and also just getting taken out by IGO at the moment. So, Dan, if you're listening, you, you stole my job. <laughs> but look, uh, yeah, look, he had, um, but it wasn't the right time. I, when I was, and this was back in Barminco before I left, I just employed at that stage about 20 senior management people into Barminco and they're all on north of 200 grand packages and, you know, Stu Tonkin was one, Luke Cray as well and then multiple others and it was one of those ones I literally just employed them and the last thing you can do as a manager is you employ key people that you worked with in the past you want in there and, and all of a sudden you say see you later I'm out of you
1: can't do like, it they'll yep. never
2: ever work for you again so I was forced to hang around and I did I gave up a you know an opportunity I'm not saying I would have got it I got down to the final two but I pulled out at the last minute I just said look I can't do it yep. otherwise you know it, I just don't feel right yep and you know these people have come on board to work for the organization and work with me in that opportunity and like I just don't feel right can't do it so I pulled out a couple of years later Roly remembered that and had a, an opportunity in Northern Star It was just a greenfield's exploration company up in the Kimberleys and, and they're looking for an MD and normally the MDs of exploration companies are geologists not mining engineers and but you know he sort of convinced the board to put me on the list and rang me up and just got me at a weak moment in Northern Terrace I was sitting in the front of a car yard and you know like literally going far out I'm stuffed you know like this is what's my next move yeah, what's my next move and, and uh, so yeah I just said look well, look, I'm interested, give me, give me an opportunity to do some research. And I always do research on stuff. And I had a look at the company and, you know, there was a couple of appealing things like the 25% shareholder was Jubilee Mines with Kerry Amanis And he was flying back then with Cosmos, you know, big, big company, making heaps of money. And you know, he was a big shareholder and they were a big shareholder of us. So I knew I knew one thing, oh, I was going to get paid, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which is very important. Yeah. And that was pretty important <laughs> back particularly then.
1: Particularly important, yeah.
2: But I did want to get into mine ownership side of things. So I just, and I did have aspirations to go into the corporate arena. And I hadn't been in the corporate arena per se, because I'd just been, you know, working for private companies at a very high, you know, executive level, but I hadn't been in a public listed vehicle and in the corporate arena and, 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 and also mine ownership. So I just thought, well, I'll I'll have a look at it, throw my hat in the ring. I did like the projects at the stage and, and I thought, well, you know, I can have an influence on the strategy and all that. And, yeah, so I joined it. I think they were 10 cents a share then. I think they dropped down to seven when they announced I was joining. But, um, but yeah, so that was, you know, that was August 2007 when I joined Northern Star. Gosh. And uh, and as you know, um, the GFC come around pretty quick.
1: Well, it was literally around the corner, yeah.
2: Yeah, that was, yeah, that was, again, you know, like, sort of you get kicked when you get kicked. And um but look I've always had a a keen interest and a hobby on, you know, capital markets and, and economics and stuff like that. I read a lot of stuff when I when I can. Yes. Um and I do keep in tune with what's happening, you know, financially around the world and and, and I could see that train crash coming to be honest. And even my own self, I, I sold all my shares and, you know, at the peak of the ASX back then I was thinking it was sixty sixty eight hundred and yeah, no, I didn't have much then but you know, I just I just didn't like it, you know. It was a few catalysts that I thought I could see a train crash. And I, I actually pulled up all our drill programs. I put a team together, raised some money, we were drilling, and I literally cancelled everything yep. like halfway through. I just And thank God I did. Otherwise, we would have folded um, because we only had so much money. But, um, but we closed it all out and, and, geez, we had to beg, borrow, and steal to keep the company afloat. There's no two ways about that you know it's, it's a bit of folklore but you know the only asset we had when we closed the doors was a little exploration on it was called a complex but it was just a tin shed and a transportable up at halls creek and i uh, managed to sell it for 330 grand on vendor payment terms it took about 18 months two years to pay oh, gosh <laughs> but um but uh yeah no real estate agent would go out and touch it so I literally just put a sign on the iga bloody notice board that it was for sale and someone driving past in the region saw it and rang me up thank god but uh you know, we took director's loans, we weren't getting paid and, you know, I, was on, I think I was on half pay or no pay and, and we're just accruing debts and, you know, all your entitlements were accrued and, yeah, it was, you know, they were tough times. Any, any director, you know, didn't want to look each other in the eye because, you know, you probably would have had to, you know, call someone in to, to, to sort of wrap it up. Yep, yep. And um, to to the credit of my past chairman, Chris Rowe and, you know, directors like Peter Langworthy and, and others, you know, like they put their hand in their pocket and lent some money and, yeah, and you know, they were difficult times, and I was consultancy as well, part time, because I just couldn't put food on the table. So, yes, they were uh, amazing times. They're good characters, but there was a journey yeah. at 27 to 210 in Northern Star where it went through a lot, even though we didn't achieve a lot. But I really had a, what I call an apprenticeship as an MD. Yes, I literally got a three year, four year, you know, three year apprenticeship corporately. Yep, you know, when you have to hold tenements when you've got no money, and there's tricks to that. That's why. The Mark Creases are one of the richest guys in the state because he had half the state pegged and still does. And he's been able to hold those tenants for a long period of time. So you learn all those tricks off those guys. The Stan McDonalds, who was a big shareholder of Northern Star back then. He you know, had the other half of the state pegged and was Geralia and got bought out by Atlas, Atlas Iron. But you know, those guys, you, know, you learn off them and, and beg, borrow, steal and, and maintain. So actually, I had lunch with Stan when we were really tipping on the edge and you know, Stan never pays for lunch.
1: Right, right.
2: And I'm like, Fuck, okay, how am I going to pay for this lunch? I've got no money. The company's got <laughs> oh, no gosh. money. Shit. I hope the credit card doesn't bounce. But um, I just remember at the end of the lunch, he just goes, Bill, I know, I know where you're at. I know what you're in. But he goes, just try and keep the company afloat. Just try and try and salvage something for shareholders. Yep. And, um, and that's, that comment's never, never lost me. You know, just, you, and it just also you, you reflect on those comments later on is when you run a publicity is about shareholders. Yep. And, um, and that's a, a sort of a little snippet of something that's ingrained in me of what stands said is just salvage something, keep something for shareholders, keep it afloat. Yep. That wasn't easy, but we, we did.
1: And you maintained it. So, Billy, it was a fast track from then in terms of the way you handled Northern Star and the acquisitions that, that followed. Was that a purposeful intent? You really wanted to leverage off your skill set, identify minds that you already knew in large, to, to a large degree, and then expand them and do, do it the right way, or what you saw was the right way. Operational, production, keep the costs low and make as much as you can.
2: Yeah. Look, it's, it was, you know, like the closing out the expiration phase of Northern Star, like, you know, I had to find a new investor and Mike Fodi's come along and, and recap the company with us. But um, I'll never forget a, a conversation I had with Peter Langworthy in the car park. He goes, Look, I like what Mike's trying to achieve and, and what he wants to do. And, and he said, you should, hang, you should hang around the hoop. You should actually explore this opportunity. Because Mike, Mike wanted to put assets into the company, but he didn't want to manage it. He wanted, wanted management to come with it. And, um, and that was great. But I said to Mike up front, I said, look, I'm a mining engineer, mate. I'm not a geo like you. I said, you know, no offense, but I said, GeO, spend money. Mining engineers don't have a job unless they make money. And I said, you know, unless you want to back the vision that I want, I want to go and own and operate assets that I think can demonstrate near-term cash flow within 24 months. You know, I didn't realise we are going to get cash flow from day one on the first acquisition, but like that was a vision I thought that I wanted to be using my skill set as an operational mining engineer to go yep. and buy and own operate mines. And, and to my credit, he fully endorsed that and backed it and we recapped it at 1.25 cents Northern Star and it's like trading it, you know, got to $17.50 12 months ago. You know, amazing result. But, um, you know, we did get to one cent. And I'll never forget my, uh, my ex-wife. She did remind me, of, you know, back then, you know, <laughs> you're, you're the MD of a one cent mining company. And I, I, I still <laughs> laugh at that. So you've got to keep your feet on the ground and reflect on that. But look, fast forward in, you know, 2010, July, we, you know, like I, I do seize opportunities, mate. You've got to put yourself in the game. Yes. Like I, I hate these people that sit on the edge of the court and are on the on the sideline of the field and just, you know, like. You know, say XYZ but we'll step over the line and get in the game. otherwise quiet. Yeah. Be quiet. And um and I was only talking to a friend about this yesterday. Is like you've got to put yourself in the zone. And that's just life as well, you know, like yep. you know, you, you won't meet your partner unless you go and say hello, will you? You know, no. like you know, so or you won't meet people unless you go and say hello. And it's no different in, in business and work, you know, like I've gotten umpteen examples of where I've walked corridors or, you know, in Bamiko when I was a junior burger and went into doing tendering in the office, I'd you know, three or four times a day I'd walk past Peter Bartlett's office just so he knew who I was and just say, you oh, know, wave and say hello and, you know, like, or, you know, just do those deliberate things where people know and can see you and you're engaged and whatever and, and, you know, like opportunities happen from putting yourself in the game. So there's no different at Northern Star as, you know, like we had nothing in 2010. I think I had 50 grand in the bank when I put the offer in on Paulson's in, in July 2000 or in March 2010 and, and just, um, you know, I saw an opportunity and there's a colleague of mine, Mike Maroney, who's still in Northern Star now. I managed to, I worked for him. Then I got him to come in the business years later, but you know, he was an investment banker back at that stage and he just rang me up and said, Bill, I know you're, looking, you know you're looking for an asset to buy and I know you want to go and own and operate an asset. He goes, there could be an opportunity here and it wasn't for sale. I just literally got the number off him, cold called the MD and said, would you entertain an offer? And he said, yeah. And so you know, we did do due diligence and yeah, we bought that asset. The time we settled, we had five grand in the bank and I didn't know where the payroll was coming from in two weeks' time. But um, you know, bought a cracking asset, saw the potential, like everyone involved in it. It's not, not just me. It was a full team effort. You know, Mike Fotis was has got a geological gift. I say a gift. You know, yes, yes X, Y, Z commercially, but as a geologist, I, he's the best I've ever seen in my whole career. It doesn't matter what commodity you talk to. And, and he gave us the confidence to, to buy that asset on literally two drill holes. And only one of them had an all-grade intercept below the current sort of mine plan. And when we bought it, we paid more for it than what the mine plan actually said. So it was an amazing result. So yeah, look, and the business model to to do that, Banners, hasn't changed. Like that acquisition model and operational plan that I published when I announced the deal in 2010 before we even said, oh, that's the same thing I published every acquisition I did for the next 11 or 12 acquisitions.
1: So on those acquisitions, 2010 Paulson's, then you've got Plutonic? Yep. Then you've got two mines off Barrick. Yep. And then you've got Jundee.
2: Yep. Fantastic asset.
1: And you bought that off Newmont for 82? and a
2: half. Eighty yeah. and 82 and Probably makes that a quarter now.
1: Which is unbelievable. Yep. And at that stage, Northern Stars now become the second biggest gold miner behind Newmont. So that was a pretty fast, when you talk about acquisitions, that was a fast track. You were on. You knew what you were doing, you, your model, and clearly Mike Fotis had a role to play in that. But now you knew what you were doing, and you were cash positive, and things were starting to move for you.
2: Yeah, look, it was, and and I'm one of these people that you've got to have a strategy behind your business. Yeah, if you don't have a strategy, and if you don't have a, a even your own personal life with your own career and stuff, like I've always had stuff mapped out. Yeah, I'm always thinking about where I'm going to go and what the timeline is, and what do I need. Probably people look at you've achieved a lot really quickly, but it's no, it's not. There's no overnight success story like it took me 20 years of experience to get into Northern Star and what I did, if you know what I mean. Yes, yes. You can't, it's it's not, it's like Kerry Manus I love. You know, everyone thinks it's an overnight success, but it took him 20 years to get um, Jubilee to where it was. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears. People forget that. But look, yeah, coming back to to Northern Star was, yeah, we had an operating model, but we always sat down in that business. Any major change in the business, we sat the whole executive senior management group, and the board down and worked out what the strategy was, how to readjust the strategy, or once a year we'd sit down and, and revise the strategy and see how we're tracking as a group. And you know, I think we did, I used to do three-year strategies, and I think we did six, six three-year strategies, but we achieved them all in 18 months. I think the, the last one we did in 20 months. Um, so we're, I'm always about setting a strategy where the business is going to be in three or five years' time. Yes. And admittedly early on the, the genesis of the company, you know the mines didn't have big long life, and, and we were aggressive, we were growing quickly. We didn't, have, we didn't have the runway to set a five-year strategy until the last couple of years before I left. We set a five-year strategy. We achieved it in two. Um, and that's why I left. There's, there was no point me setting the next five-year strategy because I wasn't going to be there, and there's, there's no point now they've set a new five-year strategy, and, and they're, they're tracking along to that. But going back, you know. I'm a huge believer of these workshops, getting everyone to buy in that everyone import and doing that. And I, I used to think that was bullshit. You know, yep. Fifteen years ago, I thought that was a big company bullshit, but it's so powerful, setting them up and doing it. So you know, we we had a strategy to to build the business, and and we went through that. You do have to upskill workforces and, and talent. And um, I'm a huge promoter of of internal. I very rarely inject talent in. It's only if 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 I need to, at the last resort. So I organic. Yeah, I'm a massive fan. And we were, you know, Northern Star was one of the biggest trainers of apprentices, graduates, operators in the industry by far. I've always been like that. It was the same in Barman Co. Is you, your best employees are the ones you've already got that you train. But there's times where you have to inject it. I remember I, you know, I remember losing uh, the Yulgarn South assets that they were the first assets Barrick put on the chopping board back in 2013. And we come second, and, and I still think we had a better deal. And, and history says we did have a better deal, but they chose the security of Goldfields to sell those assets. And I had a certain management team around then that just didn't give me that extra push, you know, like yeah. that extra, that last 10 minutes of, you know, fourth quarter where you need your captain just to, you know, or your team match just to pick you up and step and up. Step up. Yep. I just didn't have that. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, I cried in my lunchbox a bit when I lost them because they were cracking assets, and they still are. That made me to get more hungry, own and, and and I upgraded my management team. That's when I bought in the likes of Stu Tonkin and, and others into the business and uh, who could clearly execute. Yeah, and, yep. and get get that bandwidth and that grunt behind you. And yeah, but the industry crapped itself. It was like Chicken Little when we bought these mines because late thirteen through fourteen, we we're buying a mine a month, and like we went from two hundred employees to two thousand in six months, and everyone industry was like. You know, chicken little, sky, you know, Bill's taking on too much. Yeah. But what they forgot is they didn't know your background. Like, corporately, went, you know, I'd only been out in that arena for a couple of years. And, but they forgot that we ran large scale teams in bar Minko's and other organisations. So as we grew, we just went back to the well. Yep. And just, and just pulled people that we've had through our whole career that we build our careers on. It was a really simple. And you look back now and laugh about it. But at the time, it was, there was a lot of knives getting thrown around by you know external people and people think we're all going to fail and you know and we just kept kicking goal after goal and like but when you're buying a mine a month people just just thought the negative stuff and and it was also how do you engage the new teams like all those teams the same teams you know when we bought those assets the only head we chopped off was the GM everyone else we kept like I've never taken GM on acquisition I just think it's unprofessional to take take the top person when you want to knack change and get yes. them to walk a different way, yes. a different direction and wear a different shirt. But everyone else was the same. And, uh, and we did amazing things with those assets. But, but we knew how to motivate people and engage in people. And you know, quite a lot of these assets, because they're in big companies, the CEO, let alone the COO, hadn't been to site for three years. Because we're operational people, Like you, you just couldn't keep us off site. So And, and people work for people. And when you, you get underground or you get in the mill or get out the back of the tailings dam and you actually talk to the operators, you know, they respect that. Yeah, and yeah. And, uh, and, you know, you, people switch really quickly and, and that's what we did. Boots on ground, talk to workforces and being open honest. Yep. Quite often, you know, the hardest thing to say no is, is no. But people appreciate it when you actually just make a decision and they might not like it, but if you make a decision and you explain why, people move on pretty quickly.
1: Well, that's the end of part A. And you can't help but be absorbed by Bill's story. And there is plenty to go with this journey. Part B is up next.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company Euros Hartleys If you like what you heard please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice If you have any questions or would like to contact us please email our fabulous producer Bridget on communications at EurosHartleys.com or visit our website at www. This podcast has been general information only Euros Hartleys Australian Financial Services Licence 230052